Well, good morning, everyone. It's good to be back again with you with the dear saints at Desert Springs. I enjoyed being with you last week. Brought my sidekick with me last week, Carolee. <laughs> Carolee is up in uh, Utah this morning, uh, hiking at a place called Cedar Breaks. And so she's worshiping God in nature this morning. So if you have your Bibles, uh, please uh, turn them to James chapter 5. Our text this morning is verses 7 through 12. James chapter 5, verses 7 through 12. James has some, he has some very important things to say to us in these verses, about two things particularly. Uh, he has some uh, important things to say about patience and then a little bit later in the text about steadfastness. They are closely related, but they're a little bit different. And he also talks about reckoning with the future when making decisions in the presence. So let me pray for God's help in understanding this important passage for us this morning. So let's pray. Lord, we ask that you would help us to not only understand your word, but to believe your word and then to do your word, being transformed by the Spirit that the law might be written on our hearts. These things we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, this is the text for us this morning, James 5, verses 7 through 12. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until he receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, uh, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, You've seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. But above all, my brothers, do not swear, either by heaven or by earth, or by any other oath. But let your yes be yes, and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. This is God's word for us this morning. You know, as most of you know, um, I spent a large part of my adult life... uh, in the United States Army. I spent a lot of that time teaching in the Army school system. Have any of you have any of you ever heard of the Army way of teaching? I, there are some people who probably know what that is. Well, it's basically this. You tell them what you're going to tell them. Then you tell them. Then you tell them what you just told them. And then finally... You review. <laughs> you know, and that's, that's the Army way of teaching, and, and James pretty much does the same thing here. Interesting enough, in these verses. He commands, be patient. Then he gives us this wonderful illustration of the patient farmer. Then he repeats the command, be patient. Then he goes on to give two more illustrations of patient endurance or steadfastness. He talks about the prophets. He talks about Job. That's a good way to teach. It generally gets through to people, at least to army folks. 
I don't know about you Presbyterians, though. But <laughs> we'll just have to kind of wait and see, all right? Uh, the key terminology of the passage uh, are forms of two different word groups, meaning patience. Patience is mentioned three times in verses 7 and 8 and once in verse 10. And this other word group, steadfastness, which is mentioned twice in verse 11. Now, in these verses, patience is the self-restraint that does not hastily retaliate against the wrong. Steadfastness is a little bit different. It's a temperament that does not easily succumb under suffering. A steadfast person just keeps on keeping on, regardless of the circumstances. And James tells us here a very important fact. He says that the motivation, the driving force for that kind of patience and steadfastness is the next and the last great event in redemptive history. It's the second coming of the Lord, both in salvation and in judgment. James says, focus on that. Keep that in the forefront uh, of your thoughts every hour, every day. So keep your Bibles open there to James 5, and let's take a look at these uh, verses, verses 7 through 12, and see how James does all that. I think you will have noticed as I read that how many times James says brothers in this passage. I count four times. So he's talking to us. He's talking to brothers and sisters. He's talking to Christians, to believers who are enduring trials. He's concerned to set before us the proper attitude, the proper frame of mind that we have to have if we're going to persevere to the end until Christ comes again. And so his advice to us in these verses, I think, is pretty straightforward. First, be patient when you suffer. Second, remain steadfast when you suffer. Now, in the first six verses of chapter 5, you know, just take a look there, James talks about rich people. He talks about rich people who oppress the poor, and he gives them a strong warning not to do that. You know, James says that God sees all that. He hears all that. And having said that to the rich, he then turns his attention in verse 7 to those the rich were taking advantage of. You know, he told the rich not to oppress the poor, but since I think apparently he assumes that in most cases they're not going to stop that, then what are the poor people to do? How are they to act in the face of this? So James tells them in the first place here, to be patient. I want you to notice that he's not telling them to be patient because there's nothing else that they can do. Or to be patient because maybe the rich will then treat them a little better if they are. That's not what he says here. He says, brothers and sisters, be patient, remembering the kind of Lord you serve. Remember that he's a just God. That the Lord Jesus Christ, his son, is coming again in judgment. And when he does, all the injustices that are now being inflicted on you are going to be made right. You know, Psalm 37, that psalm that Marty just read, wonderful psalm. It's a marvelous song of encouragement to righteous people, to Christian people. God's saints are described in Psalm 37 as poor. And needy. 
and is suffering persecution at the hands of wicked people. And I, they're tempted to be envious of the prosperity and the well-being of the wicked. And I think even paradoxically, to be impatient for the wicked to receive judgment. But in that situation, and we've all been there at one time or another, the psalmist encouraged the righteous to what? To be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. By the way, it's very interesting. I, I noticed in the bulletin that that was one of the prayers of Nikki and Chris. And they prayed this week. Well, James says pretty much the same thing here, doesn't he? He's writing to believers who are suffering. Believers who believe in a future world beyond this one. They believe in a sovereign God. They believe in justice. Because God is a just God. And James says to them, if you're oppressed, then be patient. Because when Jesus comes back, justice will be done. He'll make it right. So he wants them and he wants us to focus in on that day of the coming of the Lord Jesus. He says we need to live our lives in light of that focal point. You know, it's the coming of Christ for which we're all waiting. All of life, James says, is to be lived in light of that last event in redemptive history. And in that sense, James says, it's coming soon. James is saying, I think he's saying this, is that the Christian life is not a sprint. The Christian life is a marathon. The finish line is the second coming, and not anything less. You know, the Christian life is, as one author, I think his name was Eugene Peterson, called it, it's a long obedience in the same direction. And James uses here as an example that of a, of a farmer who has to patiently wait for the earth to produce his crops. He plants the seed at the time of the early autumn, October rains. Then he has to wait for the necessary late spring rains, which cause the grain to mature for harvest. You know, there's a story told about an ungodly farmer He lived in a predominantly Christian community. All the other farmers observed the Lord's Day, and they went to church on Sunday. Well, the man's farm was right across the road from the church. And so to demonstrate his independence from God, he made it a point to plow his fields on Sunday mornings, every Sunday. Well, the summer went by, harvest came, And after the harvest, this man wrote a letter to the local newspaper explaining his position. He said, all summer long, when others were in church, I've been working my fields. God hasn't punished me for my action. In fact, not only have my crops succeeded, but I've even been able to raise more crops than those who rested one day of the week. What do you say to that? Well, the editor of the paper, who was a Christian, he printed the letter in full. But down at the bottom, under this man's article, he added this. He said, God does not settle his accounts in October. (laughs) 
This is what James is getting at here. We may undergo persecution in this life. We may endure trouble. We may see the wicked prospering while we're suffering. But that's not the end of the matter. God will eventually, when he comes back, soon, maybe tomorrow, he will eventually settle his accounts. Dear ones, it's only the October of our lives. And in the meantime, we have to wait patiently for the spring rains. Wait patiently for Christ to come back. Then he says in his word that he's going to set things right, and he will. You know, I read a story recently of an account of the Duke of Wellington and his great battle against Napoleon at the Battle of Waterloo. Well, you may not know it, but Wellington's army at that time was basically very inexperienced. It's full of, full of raw recruits. Very few of them were battle-hardened. And so this was his simple strategy against Napoleon and the French army. His battle plan was basically this. Get pounded all day and wait for the Prussians. Get pounded all day and wait for the Prussians. That was it. You know, he couldn't attack. The only thing that he could do was to stand there and wait until his ally, the the Prussians, got there. To hold on until the Prussians arrived, and then they could mount an attack against Napoleon. And that's what he did at Waterloo. He got pounded, but he held on. You know, the Prussians arrived in time, and the Battle of Waterloo was won. The point Wellington had to focus on was the arrival of the Prussians. If they didn't arrive, game over. But when they arrived, victory was at hand. And I think in a very real sense, that's the way the Christian life is. We may be getting pounded all day, but we need to patiently endure until Christ comes again. And when he comes again, the victory is ensured. Well, in verse 9, James goes on. And he warns us here not to be grumblers while we patiently wait. And we can understand why James put this in here, can't we? You know, isn't this grumbling, you know, one of the temptations that almost always accompanies the presence of these difficult circumstances like these that James has described here? I think it is. Blaming others is a form of impatience. And typically we, we vent our frustration on those who are near to us, the members of our family, or maybe the members of our spiritual community. You know, men come home after a tough day, and what do we often do? Well, we kick the dog and we chew out the wife. You know, many of our hard words, whether or not we admit it to ourselves, they are an expression of our own impatience, our sense of having been wronged, and the Lord not doing anything about it. So we need to watch our words, because as James says here, the coming of the Lord is at hand. The judge is standing at the door. You know, one of my favorite hymns, 
is for all the saints. We're going to sing it uh, later on this morning. It's our hymn of hope. We sing it a lot at funerals. All the Saints was written in 1906 by Ralph Vaughn Williams. So let's let's do things a little bit differently here. Uh, find a Trinity hymnal that's near you. You should there should be one, and open it to hymn number 358. And let's let's just take a quick look at that hymn. I think it's hymn number 358. If it's not, Jonathan can find it for us. <laughs> So find a Trinity hymnal and open that. You know, what you may not know is that although we have six stanzas in the Trinity hymnal, Williams actually wrote something like 12 stanzas to this hymn. Now here's the premise of the hymn. The premise is it's a prayer of thanksgiving to God for the way he caused his people to persevere to the very end. Now he praises God in stanza one for all the saints who have found their labors rest. These saints who are in heaven, they're, they're enjoying the presence of God right now. And God was the one who caused them to persevere. He was the one who brought them to heaven. Listen to what he says about these saints in stanza two. Thou wast their rock, their fortress, and their might. Thou, Lord, their captain in the well-fought fight. Thou, in the darkness drear, their one true light. And so he sings. He sings here of this glorious reality that God was their hope during some of their darkest days. Then he turns the focus of the prayer upon us, upon you and me. And he begins to pray that God would make us to be faithful in the fight that you and I are fighting here on earth. Listen to what he says in stanza three there. Oh, may thy soldiers, faithful, true, and bold, fight as the saints who nobly fought of old. And win with them the victor's crown of gold. And so he's praying that God would enable us to fight as the saints who've gone before us. And this is what he says in one of the stanzas that's not in the Trinity hymnal. He says, And when the strife is fierce, the warfare long, steals on the ear the distant triumph song. And hearts are brave again and arms are strong. He's saying that when things go south and you're beginning to fail, you hear in the distant future this triumph song because the victory is already won in Christ. And dear ones, we need to get a glimpse of that victory. That's already won. That's certain. It's more certain than the chair you're sitting on right now. It's more certain than the air that you're breathing. And William says we need to get a sight of it, a sound of it, a smell of it. And then we can go on. Then we can put one foot in front of the other and survive the trials that we're going through now. But Williams is still not done in this wonderful hymn. He goes on and stands afore. The golden evening brightens in the west. Soon, soon to faithful warriors comes their rest. Sweet is the calm of paradise, the blessed. You know, this is, this is one reason we sing this glorious hymn at funerals. He's talking about the day when the sunset of God sets upon a believer. And that believer's body is laid in the grave. 
and his soul goes immediately to be in paradise with God forever. There are two more stanzas in the Trinity hymnal, stanzas five and six. It's not just a faithful death that the believer is aiming for. There's something more. Listen to what he says here. But lo, there breaks a yet more glorious day. The saints triumphant rise in bright array. The king of glory passes on his way. Hallelujah, hallelujah. From earth's wide bounds, from ocean's farthest coast, through gates of pearl, streams in the countless host, singing the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Hallelujah, hallelujah. That's the point, isn't it? That's what we're working for, isn't it? You know, there are points in my life, and I know that there are in yours, that I get discouraged in ministry. You know, when, I, when I'm discouraged with my own sin, when I, when I cave in repeatedly to my disordered desires, there are times when I wonder why I'm doing this. And you know all that too. Then I remind myself that there will be a day, there will be a day, when I stand with all of you and we will see the King of glory passing on his way. And we're going to turn to one another and we're going to say, this is why we did it. This is why we preached. This is why we prayed. This is why we taught Sunday school. This is why we worked. This is what we're hoping for. And we were hoping for the day when we would see the coming King of glory passing on his way. And dear ones, let me just tell you, if that is our hope, we can endure anything, anything patiently. And I think that's what James is saying here. And that's what Williams is saying in that wonderful hymn. Fix your eyes, establish your hearts on the coming of the King of glory. And then in the midst of trials that God will surely bring your way, whatever they are, it doesn't matter, you'll be able to patiently endure them. For all the saints. What a great hymn that is. We're going to sing it a little bit later. Well, let's go on. He now continues and he tells us that we're not only to be patient, but we're also to remain steadfast. Not to succumb to anger and bitterness under temptations and trials. You know, I think one problem we have with patience, at least I do, is that it, it almost always appears to us to be passive. Uh, you know, not doing anything. And most of us in this room are, we're usually activists. And James says here that being steadfast, enduring, is to be patient in an active way. Remaining steadfast, standing firm. I think it suggests very clearly that we're to hold tightly to what we have. Now, bearing up under opposition, praising God. It means giving testimony to the gospel when the situation presents itself. Never retreating from what we know. It means that we're to endure 
as the ambassadors of Christ who have a mission assigned to us. We're to make sure that we really live for Christ, that we should always be about his business. You know, in James' time, as today, I think Christians often respond to this, well, that's easy for you to say. You're not suffering like I'm suffering. You know, if you were, you wouldn't say those things. Well, it's interesting. To answer those kinds of objections, James gives a couple of examples of the suffering of godly men in history. And he reminds people that they went through only what other Christians have experienced. First, in verses 10 and 11, he directs their attention to the prophets. Now, he doesn't name which prophets he had in mind here. But as you know, all of them endured some sort of rejection and abuse. Uh, Moses. (laughs) Moses had to put up with the stiff-necked, rebellious, grumbling Israelites. The Israelites were always griping about something. And they almost always blamed him for what they were going through. David was relentlessly pursued by Saul. Jeremiah, he endured opposition throughout his ministry, bringing him so much sorrow that he became known as the weeping prophet. Ezekiel. Ezekiel endured the death of his wife during the course of his ministry. Daniel was ripped from his homeland as a teenager. He was later thrown into a den of lions because of his faithfulness to God. Hosea endured a heartbreaking marriage. Amos faced lives and scorn. In the New Testament, John the Baptist, he was imprisoned. He was beheaded for his testimony to God's truth. You know, just look at Hebrews 11. Hebrews 11 lists this whole host of lesser-known prophets who were, it says there, they were jeered and flogged, chained and imprisoned, stoned. They were sawed in two, put to death by the sword, who went around in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, persecuted, mistreated. You know, we think of Stephen. Remember, as he was being stoned, he reminded his executioners, that there was not a messenger that God had sent who had not been rejected in his time. He says over in Acts 7, Was there ever a prophet your fathers did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one. And of course, the righteous one. The culmination of God's revelation. The messenger who was above all other messengers. The coming king. He was killed as well. Now, James is not encouraging us here to seek out persecution. But he is saying that if you endure suffering for the sake of righteousness, you need to also remember that it's not uncommon for that to happen to God's people. We should expect it. We shouldn't be surprised by it. All the prophets suffered for their testimony, and so will we. But James' point is very straightforward here. And when we go through now, is nothing compared to the glory that awaits us when Christ comes back to meet us in the air and to take us to heaven. Nothing compares to that. So he says here, remember the prophets. Be encouraged. Run your Christian race with diligence and faithfulness as they did. It's worth it. 
So he doesn't mention any specific prophets, but he does mention one individual here. Not a prophet, as far as we know. But nevertheless, one whose name is nearly synonymous with patient suffering. And that's Job. We all know the story of Job. Job was a righteous man. He certainly wasn't sinless, but he did live an upright life before God. And he endured unimaginable, unexplained suffering. The fierce attacks of Satan, which resulted in the loss of all of his kids, his wealth, his health, his reputation. And I think worst of all, he lost his sense of God's presence in his life. Now, it's true if you read, you know, if you know Job, that Job did vocalize his misery. He bemoaned the terrible counsel of his misguided would-be friends. He cried out in confusion to God, you know, why is this happening to me? Yet through all of that, even though he didn't understand why all of this was happening, Job knelt down and he worshiped God, saying, naked I came from my mother's womb. Naked I shall depart. The Lord gave, the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. And the text goes on and says, In all this, Job did not sin by charging God with wrongdoing. And later, after all this terrible stuff had happened to him, we find Job saying triumphantly, Though he slay me, yet will I hope in him. What a great story. Great story of patience and steadfastness. Now, what, what an example Job is to us. You know, to encourage us when we suffer trials, to patiently endure, to stand firm, realizing that through these trials, God's strengthening us. He's perfecting us. And in the end, he's going to richly bless us. Not necessarily with physical blessings like he did Job, but assuredly with every spiritual blessing in the heavens. And so our passage ends here in verse 12 with this, at least to me, this somewhat puzzling saying about oaths. By the way, it's almost a direct quote from Jesus' Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5. Now, why is this verse here? What do oaths have to do with trials and, and patience and endurance and suffering? Why in the world would James suddenly say, but above all my brothers... Do not swear either by heaven or earth. You know, what does that, what does that have to do with anything? Well, I think there's a couple of things going on here. First of all, that little phrase, but above all, I think it suggests that when we are tempted to lose heart or to grumble, I think what James is saying here, the one thing we must never do is to begin using the Lord's name in vain to express our unhappiness about the state of our affairs by some explosive or irreverent oath. I think that's part of what James is saying here. But he also may be warning against a, a foolish response to the oppression of the rich that's described in the first six verses of this chapter. You know, I think it is true. People do tend to respond to times of trouble and distress with unrealistic pledges to God. You know, my favorite example of that are foxhole conversions. You know, when soldiers 
They pledged themselves to this lifetime commitment to God if he would just get them out of their current fix. Then when God gets them out of their fix, they immediately forget what they vowed. James seems to be saying here something like that. That it's better to be genuine. Let your yes be yes. Let your no be no, rather than dramatic, if you will. Better to mean what you say than to have unfulfilled, unrealistic vows hanging over you, which God obliges us to keep. Let your yes be yes, let your no be no. So I think this warning against vows is, it's therefore part of James' call to patience and restraint in speech, as in other daily behavior, such as watching your tongue. Well, let me conclude this morning I love telling stories with a little story of how living in light of the second coming of Christ had an impact not only on one man, but it had an impact on an entire nation. It's a story of a man by the name of Anthony Ashley Cooper. Anybody ever heard of Anthony Ashley Cooper? Well, he was the famous Lord Shaftesbury of the 19th century England. And actually, the story is reports, not my story. John Stott reported it in his wonderful book, The Incomparable Christ. But I want to just read. I normally don't read in a sermon, but I want to read just a, a couple of pages from that book about this Anthony Ashley Cooper. So hang in there with me. Born in 1801, Cooper had an unhappy childhood. Neglected and abused by his parents, his only solace was their housekeeper, Anna Marie Mills, who told him Bible stories, taught him to pray, and seemed to have led him to personal faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. At the age of 16, while at Harrow School, he saw a group of drunken men drop a poor man's coffin in the street, cursing and laughing as they did so. He was sickened and disturbed by this incident, later calling it the origin of my public career. For then and there, he resolved to dedicate his life to the cause of the poor and the weak. He entered Parliament in 1826, aged only 25, and soon began his program of humanitarian reform, seeking to remedy some of the worst consequences of the Industrial Revolution. His unremitting labor continued for nearly 60 years, and the legislation for which he was largely responsible represents an astonishing achievement. In 1842, the Coal Mines Act prohibited underground work in mines and collieries by women and girls and reduced the hours worked by boys. In 1845, the Lunacy Act secured the humane treatment of the insane and appointed 15 commissioners in lunacy, of which he was one for 40 years. In 1847, 1850, and 1859, he piloted through Parliament the Ten Hours Factory Act, which regulated working hours for women and children. He was the acknowledged leader of all this factory reform. In 1851, the Common Lodging House Act, sought to end the unsanitary and overcrowded conditions of lodging homes, laid down acceptable standards and permitted local authorities to inspect and to supervise them. Even this list is far from complete. Ashley Cooper also founded the Ragged School Union. 
and he busied himself on behalf of boy, of boy chimney sweeps, flower girls, or, orphans, prostitutes, prisoners, handicapped people, and crippled children. Although his parliamentary bills were several times defeated, he refused to give up. I must persevere, his journal records. What motivated him? To begin with, he believed and he loved the gospel. I am essentially and from deep-rooted conviction, he wrote in his diary, an evangelical of the evangelicals. This means that in particular he emphasized the divinity of Christ, his atoning sacrifice, and his coming kingdom. And his good works of love and justice were the natural outflow of his faith. During the 1830s, however, he became firmly and vitally convinced of the second coming of Christ. It entered into all his thoughts and feelings, wrote Edwin Hodder. It stimulated him in the midst of all his labors. It gave tone and color to all his hopes for the future. For there is no real remedy, he often said, for all this mass of misery, but in the return of our Lord Jesus Christ. Why do we not plead for it every time we hear the clock strike? I cannot tell you, Cooper once said to Hodder, who was his authorized biographer, how it was that this subject first took hold of me. It has been, as far as I can remember, a subject to which I have always held tenaciously. Belief in it has been a moving principle in my life, for I see everything going on in the world subordinate to this one great event. It's not surprising, therefore, that Cooper's favorite text was the second from last verse in the Bible. Yes, I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Revelation 22.20. His lifelong diary to which he committed his private thoughts is sprinkled all through with this same expression of pent-up longing. It was a motto he had inscribed in Greek on the flaps of the envelopes he used every day. A few years before he died, he left instructions that Revelation 22.20 should be one of the three texts engraved on his tombstone. And on his deathbed, he kept muttering, Come, Lord Jesus. Anthony Ashley Cooper, 7th Earl of Shaftesbury, died in 1885. So richly had he deserved the epithet, The Poor Man's Earl, that tens of thousands of people from all walks of life lined the route taken by the cortege carrying his body from his home in Grosvenor Square to Westminster Abbey. There was a great outpouring of public grief, love, and respect. Representatives of the homes, asylums, schools, and societies that he had founded carried banners on which were emblazoned sentence from Matthew 25. I was hungry, and you gave me meat. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you took me in. Naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Even the pouring rain could not dampen their spirits. My lords explained the Duke of Argyle in a political speech delivered soon afterward. The social reforms of the past century have not been due to a political party. They have, been, they have been due to the influence, the character, and the perseverance of one man. I refer, of course, to Lord Shaftesbury. The Times newspaper also acknowledged him as a man who changed the whole social condition 
of England. And why? What had been his incentive? Well, he tells us. Toward the end of his life, he said, I do not think that in the last 40 years I have lived one conscious hour that was not influenced by the thought of our Lord's return. That's quite a story. And, And here's my simple take on it. You know, if the living prospect of the Lord's return can change an entire society for the better, how much will it change your life and mine to reckon with it every day, every hour of the day? You know, what a huge difference in perspective it must make to consider our circumstances at the moment in light of the second coming when Christ will completely vindicate his people, when he will make all things right. You know, how differently we will view our problems, how much more carefully we will speak of others and to others, how much more patient and resolute we will be in enduring opposition and remaining steadfast in trial. Dear ones, this is what it means to live by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. To behave as any Christian ought to behave who knows that the Lord is near, that the Lord is standing at the door. This is my prayer for us today, that we would always live each day in excited expectation that the coming of our Lord is near, perhaps even today. Lord, make it so in our lives. Let's pray. Our Father, bless these truths to us when we're in good health and all goes well. I think at times, Lord, these stories about the farmer and the prophets and Job don't seem very relevant to us today. Sometimes we can hardly identify with them. But when things go south, when sickness comes, when people in our family suffer affliction or when they die, then these stories do have meaning. We pray, O Father, that you would so write them upon our minds and cause them to sink deep down into our understanding that when those troubles come to us, as they most certainly do to all men and women, that we might stand steadfastly before them with great patience, not in the wisdom of this world, but rather in that wisdom which is grounded in Scripture, and consists in our sure knowledge that your coming is near, that it is at hand, that you're standing at the door. Grant that we might grow in that knowledge, live in that truth, not for our sake, but for the sake of him who loved us and gave himself for us, even Jesus our Savior. Amen.